are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. We're going to turn to Scripture together now. A book called Philemon. It is only a page long, and Aaron is going to take us through it from beginning to finish. 25 verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. There it is. We just read a whole book of the Bible. How about that? Thank you, Aaron. Sometimes you can say a whole lot without needing to say much at all, which Paul has just done in this little letter. And equally true, sometimes a person can say a whole lot and really not have said much at all. Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was just 272 words. It took him two minutes to deliver probably a little bit shorter than our scripture reading just now, and it went down as one of the greatest speeches in American history. Contrast that to the longest presidential speech ever given, and that was the inaugural address of William Henry Harrison. 
8,445 words translates to two hours. His inaugural address, of course, given outside in the cold on a rainy day. It was 48 degrees and there was a stiff wind and no microphone because it was, after all, 1841. But in an interesting twist of fate, William Henry Harrison's actual presidency was the shortest in U.S. history. He died four weeks, just four weeks into office from pneumonia. And some historians have noted that as he gave that inaugural address, middle schoolers pay attention, he wasn't wearing a hat or gloves or even a coat, (laughs) though the evidence is inconclusive. So Philemon, just 355 words. It is the Apostle Paul's shortest letter, and yet in just a few short paragraphs, God has given us something quite profound that reaches into the human experience and what it means for you and I to navigate tricky relationships. Our study this fall is taking us through some of the more obscure places in the New Testament, but the lessons that we're learning are among some of the most important in the Bible as we talk about healthy rhythms, biblical teachings that can shape our daily life and lead to a happy heart. So last week we were in Titus 3, talking about conflict resolution. And of all the healthy rhythms that we're going to talk about, it's this one, conflict resolution, that gets two weeks of attention. So this is part two, in a sense, as a follow-up to last week. But we're spending two weeks on this topic because I have found that among many of us, we would probably benefit from a double dose of godly wisdom when it comes to relational conflict. Questions like, how do I deal with someone when we don't see eye to eye? How do I deal with someone who's difficult? How do I deal with a situation where someone has wronged me? or is behaving unkindly or unreasonably, or has actually betrayed our relationship? These are pretty practical questions. They're hard questions, and they're the questions addressed in Philemon. So let's begin. The opening three verses give us the usual format as they would write letters, not emails, but letters in a Greco-Roman style. The first thing listed in their kind of letter was actually the author. We sign it at the end. They started off that way. So it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. We know by this time, as Paul's writing, he's about 60 years old. He is now, in fact, in the last five years of his life. And as he points out, he's in prison. This is during his two-year imprisonment in Rome that is referred to right at the end of Acts, Acts 28.30. Luke describes Paul's imprisonment. And it was during that time that Paul wrote what we call his prison epistles. That's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then this littlest letter of Philemon. But when you picture Paul in prison, in this moment, it actually looks more like a house arrest than it would a jail cell. He's awaiting trial, and so the Romans have him renting a house in Rome on his own dollar, and they called it free custody, which to me sounds kind of contradictory, but they called it free custody. And Paul was in a house, not in a cell, and he was able to receive guests just as he writes with Timothy sitting alongside him. 
Now, the recipient is what's listed next, and that's the name of the book, Philemon. But you'll also notice two other names, Apphia and Archippus. And it's believed that that's his wife and son. And then look what comes next. It says, and to the church that meets in your home. Now, Philemon had come to faith in Christ during Paul's stay in Ephesus. We read about that in Acts 19. But Philemon himself was from the city of Colossae, both cities being in what you and I would now call Turkey. And in Colossae, Philemon was wealthy. He was a successful businessman. And his wealth would have allowed him to have several slaves, which we'll come back to in a minute, but also a large enough house that the Christ followers in Colossae could gather there as a group for worship and for fellowship. And I want to remind us that in the early church, they didn't have church buildings, actually not until the third century. So for the first 200 years of the church, they would meet most often in homes. And here we see that the church in Colossae was meeting in the home of Philemon. And this part of the verse is important for us to note because though the primary recipient Paul addresses is Philemon, the letter is being read aloud for the benefit of the whole congregation, much like we just read it aloud today as our scripture reading. So third and finally, we have the customary greeting that Paul would include in his letters. And it really is a wordplay because in Greco-Roman letters, they would write greetings, the word charein, and he flips it now under Christ, and he says, instead of charein, he says, charis, grace, not greetings, but grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we get to verses 4 to 7, and now we have Paul beginning to address Philemon. And what I want you to see here, we're not going to read it line by line, is above all you see Paul's affection for Philemon. His love for him. He says things like, I thank God for you. I remember you in my prayers. I've heard about your love. I've heard about your faith in Christ. In verse 7, we'll pick it up there. It says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And so you can hear all the way through just how personal this letter is. It's it's almost of private nature as Paul writes to his friend. He exudes emotion. And men, I want to ask you this morning, is it okay, men, for you to show emotion? It's very quiet in this gymnasium. (laughs) Absolutely, it, it is. Even, by the way, if you didn't see that model growing up. And I want to assure you that Paul was the manly man, if you want to call him that. All right, so this is a guy showing his love, expressing it. And he's a guy who's been shipwrecked and survived beatings and attempts on his life. He knew how to make his own tent, which is pretty cool. He had survived a poisonous snake bite. He slept out under the stars. He shared his faith at the threat of death. When I picture Paul, I think of like an adventure athlete, but one who is absolutely clear about his faith in Christ and his love for his Christian brothers and sisters. So here for the whole church to hear, Paul affirms Philemon, and with their relationship thoroughly cemented, Paul then moves to his appeal. What I'd like you to notice about these next verses, and really about the letter as a whole, is Paul's exceptional ability at tact. 
T-A-C-T. Tact. Sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. My daughter Amaya said to me one evening this week in a conversation, she said, Dad, you didn't have to say it that way. And I was very quick then to clarify what I had said, essentially to double down and stick to my previous comments. And then what happened? I woke up in the middle of the night. I'm staring at the ceiling. And I said, she was right. She was right. It wasn't what I'd said. It was how I'd said it. And here, Paul sets aside his apostolic authority, which he had every right to use, and instead, what does he do? He speaks to Philemon friend to friend. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, he could. He says, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. That's tact, what he does right there. Verse 10, I appeal to you For my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Now, what does that mean? And who is this Onesimus? Onesimus was one of the millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And more importantly, he was one of Philemon's slaves, but he had escaped to Rome. He was a runaway slave. And he had run away no short distance. I mean, Colossae to Rome was 1,300 miles. You've got to imagine, I mean, that's here to the Washington state line is how far away 1,300 miles is. But not only did Onesimus run away, it also appears, we see this reference later, that he robbed Philemon on his way out the door, probably to fund his trip. So Onesimus rides off into the sunset, but then 1,300 miles away from home. He's gotten off scotch-free. An unexpected twist. Onesimus hears the gospel. And he gives his life to Christ. And somewhere in whatever happened in that story in Rome, he meets the apostle Paul, who's under house arrest. And the trajectory of his life is changed forever. And keep in mind, Paul though he's under house arrest, I mean, he is a highly educated Roman citizen. Onesimus is a fugitive slave. But now they're brothers in Christ. The name Onesimus means useful in Greek, which is why if we were reading it in Greek, you would see this wordplay where it says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become what? He's living out his name. He is useful both to you and to me. And I believe it was Robert McLean who said, Christianity knows of no hopeless cases. Not the least of which is this runaway slave. So what's going to happen now to Onesimus? In the next verses, we see Paul is sending him back. In fact, Onesimus is carrying this letter that is now being read, sitting in the room. Paul writes, I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me. But verse 14, I did not want to do anything without your consent, 
so that any favor that you would do would not seem forced, but voluntary. And again, we see tact, 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 as he writes. So let's follow this. Paul's sending Onesimus back to Philemon in Colossae. And why? Why did Paul feel obligated to do that? Because under Roman law, Onesimus is still the legal property of Philemon, and his fate is in the hands of his master. Now, what you and I typically think of when we think of slavery, which is the context of this whole letter, is we go right to 19th century American slavery. But there's some key differences that will help us better understand slavery in a biblical context. First, you track it all the way back to 10,000 B.C., and slavery develops as agriculture is developing in Mesopotamia. And then in the Old Testament, the first big slavery story is when the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites, which is about 1600 B.C. By 500 B.C., the Greek city-states and their entire economies have become dependent upon the institution of slavery. And then as the Roman Republic takes over, there were three distinct slave revolts in the last 200 years B.C., the third of which you maybe have heard of because that one was led by a gladiator slave named Spartacus. And some of you, you can go right back to that classic movie in Kirk Douglas with his chiseled face and dimpled chin and the single tear rolls down his cheek as one by one all the men stand up. And what do they say? I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. And they don't want to turn him over to the Romans. All that to say, by the time you get to the New Testament... In the early church, right in the time this letter is being written, a third of the Roman Empire are slaves. One in three around these tables in this gym. And another third were what they called freedmen, which means they were those who had been slaves, but had either been set free or had purchased their freedom. And those percentages, as I said, would have been reflected in the gathering of the church. Slaves, freedmen, and slave owners all sitting side by side in worship. So a few things to understand. Slavery at the time of the Bible was so fully entrenched and normal that you wouldn't even think twice about it existing in your society. Wouldn't even bat an eye. Secondly, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was not based on race. And that's a key difference because that is our American history context. But a person, any one of us, could become a slave for any of the following reasons. If you were captured in war, if you defaulted on a loan, if you were convicted of a crime, or maybe you were unable to make a living and so you had no choice, you sold yourself into slavery. Or maybe your parents were poor and so as a child they sold you into slavery. Or maybe you were born to parents who were already slaves. That made you a slave. Or you could have been kidnapped or the victim of piracy, any number of reasons. But however you got there, there's one thing that was clear, that if you were a slave, you had zero status. You were nothing. Now that said, some slaves, especially household slaves, could be treated quite well by their masters and would even hold positions of responsibility. You think of Joseph in the Old Testament, Joseph in Potiphar's house. 
But other slaves, many, many other slaves were treated terribly, especially the throngs of slaves who would be sent to work in the fields or on building projects or in the salt mines. And we know that their life expectancy was very short. But regardless of how you were treated, legally, slaves had no rights. They were the bottom of the barrel. Aristotle defined a slave as a living tool. And so if your slave ran away, you had the legal right, coming back to Philemon now, you had the legal right to punish your slave by flogging, by branding, by imprisonment, even by crucifixion. Now with all that in mind, maybe it surprises us then when we read our Bibles that neither Jesus nor his apostles condemned slavery. And you and I, because we're so far removed from their world and we read this through our lens, we might think that's what they should have done. You know, why, why wouldn't Jesus condemn slavery or the apostles writing the New Testament? But to do that, what you have to realize, to call for the end of slavery would have resulted in violence and bloodshed like any of those other slave revolts. And furthermore, the gospel message itself would have never been heard by any Roman citizen. So what we see Jesus and the New Testament writers do is they accept the fact of slavery, but they never endorse it. They never endorse it. What they do is they set forth the theological principles that will lead to slavery's demise. And to that point, already by about 300 A.D., You see characters like Gregory of Nyssa and Chrysostom both flat-out opposing slavery. You don't have to get to William Wilberforce and what we think of. Already by 300 A.D., they're opposing slavery on the basis of the Bible. Passages like Philemon, like Galatians, where Paul says, there is now neither slave nor free, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. I want to kind of close out this slavery conversation because though it's critical to understanding this letter, I don't want to get too sidetracked by it. But we have to wrestle with it somewhat because the question now coming back to Philemon is essentially, Philemon, what are you going to do about this slave who robbed you and ran away? How are you going to resolve this conflict? In verse 15, you see Paul begin to think aloud with Philemon. And he says, Philemon, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Verse 16, here's the principle. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. That's the power of the gospel. Only the gospel can do that. Where God would adopt us into his family where social and cultural barriers are set aside in Christ. And that's the testimony of true Christian fellowship gathered around these tables. I shared with our high schoolers just this last Wednesday night that the thing I love about Wednesday nights is that the social barriers that are so prevalent in school simply fall away in church. When we gather for student ministry, those barriers have no place. 
And you, in a sense, you can feel it in the room. I mean, here are students who otherwise, they're not crossing paths at school. They're not in the same groups. And as we come together on a Wednesday night, it doesn't matter how popular you are or if you're good at sports or if you're on the homecoming court. Every person walking in is valued and loved and respected. Onesimus has a new identity in Christ. And Paul is saying to him, Philemon, he's not just a slave, he's now your brother. And so the question that Paul puts before Philemon is, what are you going to do? And he makes this request. Verse 17. Paul says, so if you would consider me a partner, if you'd consider me a ministry partner, a friend, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong, which he has, if he owes you anything, which he does, Paul says, charge it to me. And you know what he's doing here? He says, I, Paul, am writing this letter by my own hand. What he's doing is signing a promissory note. This is a legal document now whereby Paul takes on the indebtedness of Onesimus upon himself. And he's saying, whatever he stole from you, Philemon, whatever damages he owes you, I want you to charge it to me. Just whatever you do, accept him as your brother. Don't punish him as your slave. Refresh my heart. Verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience. Again, tact, right? Confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And what's he doing there? Can you read between the lines? What's he saying? He's asking Philemon to set Onesimus free. Maybe even to send him back to Rome. Paul said he's been so useful to me just to send him on back so we can use him here in ministry. The question is, what are you going to do, Philemon? What are you going to do? And that is exactly the question that I'd like to pose for you and I this morning. Not regarding slavery, of course. But what are you going to do when it comes to conflict? A relationship that's been damaged? A person who's difficult? Who are you thinking of? Don't answer it out loud. Someone who's wronged you and in a sense run away? What are you going to do? It could be someone in your family. That's probably the most common place. Extended family. Could be somebody who doesn't talk to you anymore. It could be a former friend. Students, it could be a kid at school. Someone on your team. It could be a coworker or a boss or a neighbor. Conflict can flare up just about anywhere. In either the real big explosive ways or the ways that just sit there and smolder. And the closer you are relationally, and that's why this happens so often in family, the more susceptible your relationship is to conflict. So married couples, are we paying attention? Siblings, whether you're young or decades old, are we taking this to heart? 
And in our last couple of minutes here, I want to close by sharing with you some principles from a book that I came across actually just earlier this year called The Peacemaker. It's by Ken Sandy. It was first published in 1991. That's the last time the Twins won the World Series. Not that I'm dwelling on that. But now it's on its third edition. It's been re-released three times. It's really good stuff. We sell it. I just, just looked at it. It's over there on the book nook, which you see by the giving box. But here is something from the book. If you find yourself in the position now of Onesimus, and you're coming back, you're returning, needing to say, I'm sorry, these are the seven A's of a biblical apology. Address everyone involved. Avoid if, but, and maybe. That, that one's hard, isn't it? But, but, but. If you, if you hadn't done that, if, but, and maybe. Admit specifically. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. I, I, that, that can be tricky too. Just because I say I'm sorry doesn't mean the consequences disappear. Alter your behavior. I'm sorry means... You're not going to hit your brother again, right? And ask for forgiveness. On the other hand, if you're in the position of Philemon, and all of us, by the way, and we find ourselves in both of these spots, needing to apologize and needing to accept it. But if you're in the position of Philemon, here's the four promises of biblical forgiveness. Here's what you're saying when you forgive someone. These are powerful statements. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again or use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. And fourthly, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. Do you know that that is exactly how God forgives us? Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It's exactly how God forgives us. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, I will remember their sins no more, says the Lord. And that really brings it to a point that wouldn't you know in this little book that we just read in its entirety, we have the heart of the gospel. When we come to God in repentance, in faith, He forgives us in Christ. He gives us a new identity. No longer are we slaves to sin, but we are called sons and daughters. Because the debt that we owed, He took upon Himself on the cross. He took our sins upon Himself And he said, charge it to me. And so here we are. If you have come to Christ in repentance and faith, you stand free and forgiven like Onesimus. And then when we extend that kind of forgiveness to others, when we find a way through tricky relationships, when we extend forgiveness and resolve conflict, we're displaying the gospel. This is how God has loved me. And so I get to love you back in the same way. 
and the whole world sees what God has offered us in Christ. In what relationship or relationships is God calling you to be a peacemaker? For we're given this command, also written by Paul. For if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, that's your responsibility, live at peace with everyone. The world will see it, the world will know, and they will see only God can love like that. May you be strengthened and preserved in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as he has sustained us till this very day. We want to pause in prayer and pray specifically for the effects of Hurricane Ian and just have a couple moments to lift up hurting people in Florida and the Carolinas. So let's do that together. Lord, on the opposite end of the country, we follow the news and we see pictures of devastation, Lord, that just we could hardly imagine here in Minnesota. But our hearts break for our countrymen, countrywomen, for the kids whose schools have been leveled, homes destroyed, businesses lost. And we pray, Lord, for your mercy upon people who are in great pain. We pray, Lord, that this would be an occasion, too, for the church to rise up, to serve, to love. As we think of them, Lord, and even churches gathering in different ways in Florida this morning, we join their voices and we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.